Greetings from Longtime No See, the podcast. Every week, we'll be inviting two blindfolded comedians to answer a series of questions about their careers, lives, and opinions. Now, let's remove those blindfolds and start the show. Hi! What would your opening line with your celebrity crush be? Loved you in Harry Potter. <laughs> Worst date you've been on? A man bit my neck mole off once. You did what? A man bit my neck mole off. Oh my God, Jack almost fell off his chair. Be sure to follow and subscribe to the podcast. Save big on your Memorial Day barbecue. All in the Kroger app. Get three pound rolls of juicy 80% lean ground beef for $3.49 a pound with a digital coupon. Then get select varieties of flavorful Powerade, Body Armor Super Drink, or Arizona tea for 77 cents each, all with your card. Shop these deals at your local Kroger today. Or tap the screen now to download the Kroger app to save big today. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Prices and product availability subject to change. Restrictions apply. See site for details. Consequence Podcast Network. Hello, and welcome to The Spark Parade, where I geek out with artists and entertainers about their cultural spark of inspiration. I'm Adam Unz, at Spark Parade on all social media. Thanks ever so much for joining me. My guest this week is rapper, singer, academic, and writer Dessa, who spoke to me about her spark, Dave Eggers' memoir, A Heartbreaking Work of Staggering Genius. Uh, it's a bit of an emotion one, uh, but it's also a very sophisticated literary discussion. So picture an English professor sobbing as they give a lecture or something. Anyway. Uh, I had a really nice chat with Dessa, and you are going to have a really nice time listening to it. But first, look, I know you're bored of me banging on about this fucking review competition, but you have the power to make it stop. All you got to do is give the Spark Parade a nice little review on Apple Podcasts, and I mean it can literally just say nice, with a five-star rating, of course. Then take a little screenshot of the review... Upload it to the link in the show notes, and you could win some prizes. Everybody loves prizes, right? So please do it. It'll really help me and the show, and it'll make you feel so good about yourself. Okay, moving swiftly along. Quick Dessa facts. Margaret Wander, better known by her stage name Dessa, is a rapper, singer, and writer. Dessa's musical career began in earnest when she was asked to join Minneapolis's Doomtree Collective, the hip-hop crew known for bold production, charismatic lyrics, and explosive live shows. She started touring as a solo act after her 2010 release, A Badly Broken Code. Since then, she's worked across sounds and styles. Her albums include rap bangers, acapella arrangements, and big, catchy pop hooks. Between tours and sometimes backstage, Dessa writes poems, essays, and short stories. Her written work has been published in the New York Times, National Geographic Traveler, and in literary journals around the country. Her latest album, Bury the Lead, was released in September of this year. Quick heartbreaking work of staggering genius facts. A heartbreaking work of staggering genius is a memoir by Dave Eggers, which chronicles his stewardship of his younger brother, Christopher Toph Eggers, following the cancer-related deaths of his parents. The book was a commercial and critical success, reaching number one on the New York Times bestseller list and being nominated as a finalist for the Pulitzer Prize for General Nonfiction. 
Time magazine and several newspapers called it the best book of the year. Critics praised the book for its wild, vibrant prose, and it was chosen as the 12th best book of the decade by the New York Times. And there you have it. Let's go for a little ride. Here comes my chat with Dessa about a heartbreaking work of staggering genius. Do you remember reading this book for the first time, being turned on to it, any of that stuff? Yeah, so I was in college when I first learned that there was such a thing called creative nonfiction, which is now in many ways like my job, but I think it's really badly named. It's named twice for what it isn't. It sounds super not sexy, whereas fiction gets like, you know, it's flash fiction or it's short shorts or it's a cigarette story. It's just super well marketed. And I think if you tell someone that you're reading or writing creative nonfiction, they're not sure if you're writing like a geography textbook. You know what I mean? Mm -hmm. It just, it doesn't sound cool. So I was taking a class in creative nonfiction and discovering this whole world of like funny, idiosyncratic, often low-key depressives, writing true stories, but doing so a lot of style, you know? Yeah. One of my, one of my early favorites was Dave Vegas. Like, which is true of a lot of people, you know, my age. So I was one of the many who was like, what is this? Yeah. So was like uh, in that context of learning about the genre, um, did someone recommend that book to you or was it in a syllabus or? Yeah, I got I come off as such a poser, which perhaps I am or was. But I I remember reading a bunch of dudes named David who were writing stuff that I didn't know you was allowed to be considered like smart or literary. Mm. So I was reading um, like David Sedaris, Me Talk Pretty One Day and David Rakoff and David Foster Wallace. And I was just like, yo, what is this? Shit? And so someone else was like, well, have you read Eggers? And they were going to a reading that Eggers was putting on for this book, Heartbreaking Work of Staggering Genius. And I hadn't read it yet. So I went to the book reading, what a total poser, not having read the book. And then at that point on his book tour, Eggers was asking for volunteers from the crowd to read with him. So there was like a moment of dialogue between Eggers, playing Eggers, and his little brother, Toph. And I think my friend clocked the fact that I sort of, like every other creative writing student at the time, had a had a low-grade but diagnosable crush on, on David Eggers. And so she pushed me out of my seat. So that after the call for volunteers was made, there was a loud clatter of my body hitting the ground. And I was the obvious choice, you know. So I went up and read Toph. And he had a really good shtick at the time, you know. It was like, the hands are the copy. I'm supposed to read Toph's part. And he stops me right through like, Toph doesn't talk like that. I never had. So, you know, there's a funny like kind of subtext rapport of the inadequacy of the volunteer in that case me. Um, so that was my very first experience with the book. And then I was like, okay, this is brilliant. I'm, I'm all in, you know, and, and read it after that. Yeah, I um I just watched a couple of interviews with him where he was talking about like not really being comfortable with readings and just feeling awkward about it. So trying to find like little gimmicks to uh, get himself through it. And uh, he was talking to Conan O'Brien about it and was like, yeah, like one reading, we just got some strippers to come and stand on the table no. and just like dance while we were doing it. It's just like anything to distract people from me. It's like everybody's there to see you read a book, which is a very like, you know, you don't have a crowd of people around you. You don't have other things happening normally. When yeah, it's not performative. Right. But I guess that fits. I mean, you know, from the way that this book is written and it is like 
both self-deprecating and self-aggrandizing. And like he has this, it's like the, treading this careful line between feeling like he doesn't want this attention and he, it makes him feel very vulnerable, but also wanting to be successful, wanting to have, you know, people hearing these stories and, and loving them. It's weird. Okay. Cause I've never, I've never heard him speak to that point directly, you know, mm. but it's interesting because I feel like now 20 years, well, however many years later, it's been 15 years later, you know, I'm a writer and who are very occasionally, you know, does a book tour or something. And yeah, I think, I think I would maybe echo what he objects to. It's just, it's just very self-serious. Do you know what I mean? There could be kind of a sanctimony that's like, mm, you know, I'm going to stand. You're not doing much, man. Like if you've got a killer voice or you're a trained actor, fascinating. But most of us, like even a great, great authors reading great books, like that's a big ask, at least from my perspective, for like 40 minutes in, you know, well, I'm sympathetic to people who get antsy, even if the content is fantastic. But I remember that, yeah, after the re reading that he did, he turned over the spotlight to a panel that he had assembled, near as I can tell from scratch with local experts, that was just called Itching, What Is It? And Why Does Scratching Feel So Good? And then his job was just to refill the water glasses of the speakers. It was fascinating. We talked about like why people going through, you know, withdrawal feel like those ants on their skin. And I remember being like, this is a phenomenal event. And I think the fact that he tackles those two things differently. Here's a great book and here's a great book event, right? Those might run on different fuel. And I think that he identified that well. Yeah. Which I, I guess is another interesting point that for somebody who writes about uh, their own life, and even if some of it is, you know, embellished and there's bits where there's people like breaking the fourth wall and things that obviously did not really happen, it is for the most part a memoir. And maybe that discomfort with it, 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 it is, you know, it's very different disciplines writing something that is not intended as a performance piece and having yes. to do a bit of a performance of it. But then as you're saying, like shifting to a performance that maybe he feels a bit more comfortable with, where it's not something that's, you know, the spotlight totally on him, where he's kind of facilitating this uh, silly thing, which I guess kind of fits in with the Mike magazine stuff. Yeah. Wholehearted agreement in the same way that I think um, not every play that is moving on stage, I don't think is always moving in hand. Right. Do you know what I mean? Like it's a form that is intended to be vivified by emotive, you know, emotive expression. Right. And so watching a play that really moved me and then reading it later isn't to necessarily invoke that same emotional response. Similarly, I think that. OK, so then sometimes I think when you work in interesting forms, you know, that, that maybe aren't like completely um, working in a path that hasn't been well groomed by artists before you, which I think he does some weird stuff in the way that particularly at that time, like the way that that book broke the fourth wall, planted a flag every time he was compressing a character. In some ways, it is more committed to an honest account than any other book that I'd read because it made plain when he departed from a literal transcripted honest account. I loved it. I thought it was so clever. But when you're doing that, the audience, I think sometimes AC's gimmick, which I know is something that he's been um, accused of all the time, but I think like gimmick is just innovation that was bold and brave that didn't quite pop off. You know what I mean? Like when, it, when it's brilliant, we don't call it gimmick. We call it water phenomenal groundbreaking pioneering conceit or, or artistic idea but i think also like like an artist like fka twigs she does these rad videos and sometimes at the beginning of her career i think there was like a gentle critique that like ah this is so dope but when you don't watch the video it's not as good 
Mm-hmm. I think it was like, well, maybe the product is the video. Do you know what I mean? Like, maybe she's not just doing a video. She's a video musical artist. Like, it's a married form for her. That's the product. And so, yes, if any of us watch our favorite movies and turned off the screen, it's going to be less fun. That's part of the thing. Right, right. Just having all of those aspects in whatever medium you're talking about, consuming it in the uh, context in which it was meant to be consumed, in the mode that it was in, in which it was meant to be consumed. Yes. And it's like, duh. You know, the, the artist intent is, is a very important part of, you know, what happens. And the way that it's received, the artist doesn't have a lot of control over, um, but definitely trying to engage with them on, their, on the level that um, was intended uh, gives you the best possible opportunity of being on the same wavelength and, you know, receiving the the message in the way that they wanted it to be received. I think so, too. But I think there's also this question of, like, what counts as art and what counts as auxiliary? Like, is the book cover part of the art? Hmm. You know what I mean? Like, and I think I remember when I first found out that, like, authors can't single-handedly pick their own book titles or covers. That blew my mind. You know, whereas musicians do have that capacity, which is like the art form that I kind of came up in. But I think with somebody like Eggers, particularly with that book, is the campaign that he did on Amazon or Goodreads or whatever it was, where he right, where he asked everybody to give it a five-star review. And essentially, you know, the title of his book is the review that he hopes to get, A Heartbreaking Work of Staggering Genius. Is that part of the project? Is that a marketing campaign? Is there necessarily a difference between the two? Is it a performance art piece? Like, and I remember the first book of his that I read where the story started on the book cover. And I had just never seen that. You know what I mean? I just didn't know that that counted as part of the project and was blown away by that. You know, and he's done a lot of like cool conceptual stuff, whether or not they fall into gimmick or not. I think for me, they made me re- they made me rethink not just about his contribution, but like, what is the form? I think a lot of his stuff have, has, has asked, like, what is this form? What can it be? And are the conventions that we're all operating in necessarily true? Can it can it look and feel and be presented in a totally different way? Mm-hmm. Right. And just from a, a storytelling perspective, uh, the way that the narrative shifts, the fucking whatever 30, 40 page um, uh, preface that's like explaining how you might want to read the book, the parts that you might not want to engage with, kind of apologizing for the title, all of that kind of stuff. Yes. Um, that's setting it up with this self-deprecating uh, tone, but also just saying, like, I get it about everything that you're thinking. I'm thinking those things, too. And um, we're going to get through this together. That kind of uh, feeling that sets it up to be what it is, which is a very unusual, it's not a straightforward memoir it's not the kind of thing that's like you know the uh standard sequence of events when you're telling a story about uh, what he's talking about it's like there is a focus on his parents on him taking responsibility for his brother but then it drifts off into all these other aspects of his life and it's like there is a connection there between all those pieces but it's not a linear like this event led to this event led to this event as much as it is like snapshots of different parts of his life over that period of time, which is great. It's like, it's, um, you know, a very, uh, a, a form of storytelling that's very particular to him. You know, there are hints of influences from other people, David Foster Wallace, who uh, you mentioned, Kurt Vonnegut, those kinds of people. Um, yeah. Yeah. And I think also just like the way that pages look, you know, the first time anybody, I don't know, where are we in grade school? And someone's like, and this is E.E. E. Coleman's poem about whatever, a bell. And the shit looks like a bell. And you're like, oh my God. I think that the way that him and, you know, David Foster Wallace, like the way that they played with 
the actual physical objects mm. was also like really notable, at least to me. And also, like, like you said, uh, with the preface, I think we have this presumption that like there's whether or not we use these words, there's French matter, like the copyright page and the, ta- you know, the table of contents. And then at the end, there's back matter. And that would include whatever, like thanks to my editor and my my boyfriend or whatever the whoever you're thinking all that and i think that he blurred that partition really intentionally so it's like oh i think the book actually started or like the preview was a fake out the preview is the movie this is not a preview this is chapter one and Mm -hmm. and i think even just like um it blew my mind then to see like in a in a memoir and in a like a literary memoir a series books for smart people like when he included the floor plan of the house that he grew up in Mm -hmm. and took so seriously like the the gesture towards an AutoCAD architectural plan to indicate the best vector of travel and stocking fee to get maximum slide. Mm-hmm. He, he, he may be, as I'm saying this, I'm realizing I'm probably like uncomfortably influenced by him, but like the deliberate pairing of seemingly oppositional uh, tone and content. So like, here's a hella sad story about me raising my orphan little brother. It's hilarious. You know what I mean? Like, he's so allergic. I think he's, I think he is interested in going into the sentiment of being alive, working hard at like unpacking and examining human feelings. And he has zero interest in sentimentality. Mm -hmm. And so he's really careful about where that border is and making sure that he stays on his side of the line and can't be... I think he's. I think he would be really. I think. A, I think a criticism that involved a word like maudlin, if I were to guess, would be the one that would that would break his heart. You know, that that would be something that if you thought there was any teeth to it, would be really disappointing. That's the sense I got. I don't want to be melodramatic, and I don't want to be maudlin. Yeah. Time for a quick break because somebody's got to keep the lights on around here. But we'll be right back. Say goodbye to your credit card rewards. Greedy corporate mega stores, led by Walmart and Target are pushing for a law in Congress to take away your hard-earned cash back and travel points to line their pockets. The Durbin Marshall credit card bill would enact harmful credit card routing mandates that would end credit card rewards as we know it. If you love your credit card rewards, tell your lawmakers, hands off my rewards. Tell them to oppose the Durbin Marshall credit card bill. Save big on your Memorial Day barbecue, all in the Kroger app. Get three-pound rolls of juicy 80% lean ground beef for $3.49 a pound with a digital coupon. Then get select varieties of flavorful Powerade, Body Armor Super Drink, or Arizona Tea for 77 cents each, all with your card. Shop these deals at your local Kroger today, or tap the screen now to download the Kroger app to save big today. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Prices and product availability subject to change. Restrictions apply. See site for details. And also, the, you know, inciting event being his parents both dying of cancer within like a month of each other, which is horrific. And if somebody says, this is a book about that, do you want to read it? Of course the answer is no. Or it's like, I'll read it, but oh, I have to be in the right frame of mind. And then when you start reading it, it's exactly what you said, that there's like humor infused in all of the most horrific, harrowing parts. I mean, the thing that I keep coming back to is... He goes to an open house for his brother's school and somebody is like asking him the standard questions about like, where are your parents and getting into it and getting to the point where he says, you know, they died very close to each other. It was relatively recent. And the person says, oh, my God, I'm so sorry. And he kind of goes through his uh, transition through different uh, responses that he's given and how he used to say, like, 
you know, oh, it's not your fault. And then would throw in, or is it? Yeah, exactly. <laughs> just those kinds of things that are just like putting uh, kind of gallows humor into this um, really terrible, tragic time in his life almost helps you to understand what he was thinking and feeling even more than it would be if it was in this very like serious, somber delivery. Yeah, because I think even just in conversation, mm. the way that naturally human beings engage, you know, on a podcast or just like in a coffee shop, I think there is a we're reluctant and hesitant. You know, it's like you don't want to push on the absolutely tenderest bruise. You want to be mindful of huge hurts by not even addressing them sometimes. Like you, you want to tread very lightly. You know, you don't ask like, hey, I heard you just got divorced. Because you don't want to, you know, you don't want to undo somebody accidentally in the frozen food section or whatever. But I think that he tried to diffuse the reads that he knew he didn't want. So in some ways he's making a rebuttal to sanctimony. Mm -hmm. Do you know what I mean? Like this should not be read with kid gloves. This is approachable. Humor happens here. You know, it it's life changing. And it's serious, but it isn't necessarily entirely solemn. You know what I mean? So, like, I think humor invites people to engage with it as opposed to worrying about, you know, treating it with, you know, absolute eggshell care with fragility that would prevent you from actually, like, getting in there and, and getting your hands dirty in conversation or asking questions about it. Yeah. And I think, obviously, I think humor is its own attractant. Mm -hmm. Like, if something is hilarious and you, you if something... It's hilarious to you, you know, whether it's a Netflix special or or an Instagram feed like that. You can run on that for a long time. Humor is pretty magical. But I, I, it also just makes me think about the complexities of grief and how uh, and tragedy and how people uh, relate to each other in those moments and navigating kind of the minefield of w what is the best response when somebody tells you that kind of information that they've had this absolutely like un, un, unimaginable tragedy in their life and then also you know part of it is mind reading trying to figure out what that person wants from you in that moment you don't want someone to like dissolve into floods of tears and say i can't believe you're making me think about this i was doing okay and, you know, just seeing inside of his mind that he's kind of running through those ideas that he's like, I know on the other end that this person is like, holy shit, what am I supposed to do now? I was not expecting this conversation to be that. Yeah. But yeah, it's it's this like kind of uh, tap dancing that people do. And it's not even just about grief. It's about all kind of emotional uh, experiences. And that happens when you know people really well, but when you're talking to people who you don't know and encountering people constantly and throwing things into casual conversation, like, you know, my dad died. Um, he had early onset dementia and it was this thing, you know, I was like 29 years old when he died and he'd been sick for a few years. And when those things are happening, people will ask you questions and just say like, oh, so where, what, what do your parents do? Where do your parents live? And even now, when people say, like, where do your parents live? And I'll say, oh, my, you know, my mom lives in Edinburgh in Scotland. And they'll be like, oh, cool, cool. So what about your dad? And it's like, I am OK just saying, oh, he died. And the other person will be like, oh, my God. Oh, oh I'm so sorry. And then sometimes what happened and blah, blah, blah. And it just leaves room for all of these other, you know, 
possibilities and um, directions for the conversation to go when I'm just like, hey, I just want to like, let's just have a chat. It's not I didn't mean to. It doesn't have to be about. Yeah, right. Um, And I felt like that really connected with that uh, line of uh, not interrogation, but when, you know, he is navigating those conversations and really trying to figure out not just how he wants to deal with it, but like how to make the other person comfortable and how to move past it without having to like linger on this one thing. Mm. What do you do when someone, you know, on the occasions when you're on the other side of that coin, uh, how do you, how do you behave? Like, do do you tend to exhibit the sort of response that feels most native to you? So if I were to say, you know, my, my, a parent has passed, would you be like, oh, okay. And then keep moving. Like it doesn't, we don't have to have this long conversation about it. Is that what you do? And do you think that's best practices? I ask because I want to be better in those conversations too. It's again, it is that mind reading part of it that it's like you can't, each person is an individual. Some people will be really offended if you don't like take a moment to say, oh my God, I'm really sorry that happened. And, you know, if you want to talk about it, we can, however you want to proceed. And then some people are just like, oh my God, fucking God, I don't, like, we don't need to make this a thing. Let's just acknowledge that I said that and move on. And I'm like this was a long time ago i am you know it isn't something that like breaks me in the way that it would when uh he had just died but yeah i kind of like defer to the other person as to whether they feel like they want to you know dig into that moment anymore um but yeah sorry i'm not trying to uh I know that this is my show, but I'm not trying to make it all about me. Um, well, you know, I remember like I was talking to, I don't think it was an entomologist. For whatever reason, I was talking about social interactions and and theory of mind, which I think is the way that psychologists usually talk about what you just referred to as, uh, as mind reading. So being aware of the fact that the person to whom you're talking has a different vantage point, ideas, and perspective, which isn't something that we're born with. Like when you're two years old, if an experimenter comes in the room with a basket, opens the basket and shows you a candy bar and then closes it again, and then they bring in your mother, at two, you think your mom knows what's in the basket because she is omniscient. Do you know what I mean? Like, you don't have the sense like, oh, no, mom didn't see the basket open and close, so it wasn't revealed to her, like, the content. And I remember talking to somebody who was just like, we are the most social organisms, like, second to maybe organisms like bees. But yeah, I think the amount of time profound sensitivity that we have to one another is right like you know half of my cognitive spend is trying to figure out how you are receiving my next potential answer that's a lot happening (laughs) you know it's a lot it's a lot of social effort yeah yeah and so much of this book i mean in particular i think the first sort of third when it's really talking about uh watching his mother die and the kind of immediate impact after both of his parents had died the running internal monologue and that to me was the like the most affecting and the most brilliant part of it is that it feels like reading someone's thoughts it's the way that people actually think when he's like looking at his mom and just being like okay fuck is she, she she's breathing now wait is she breathing oh my god look oh this is so horrible i feel so bad for her oh but this is really fucking annoying she is a dickhead and i don't want to deal with her and but i don't want her to die and you're just like flipping back and forth through all of these cycling thoughts and it's the way it is it's the way that people deal with things And and to me, it felt, I remember thinking uh, that I was surprised that in reading that kind of, it's because it's jumpy too. Like there are big jumps of association that happen, which is the way that our minds work, obviously. But I had never actually seen it outside of my mind. Like I had never seen, it feels like a transcript. It didn't feel like here is a, here is a cleaned up version of stream of consciousness where everything you can see exactly 
you can see all the math. You know, someone has sort of paved the way and groomed the trail and you can see all the connections clearly. And I was surprised, I remember, the first time reading some of those, some of those passages that my mind was making the leaps alongside his. And I was like, oh, we are that, the lily pads are that far apart as we hop from, from idea to idea. And I remember thinking that it was really remarkable to see that represented in art in the same way that like, I don't know, I don't know how to paint, but watching someone with a soft brush work on blank, black, canvas to create the impression of the aurora borealis just because they know how light and brush and a little bit and, and i remember thinking like oh shit this is a rendering of something that i haven't seen rendered before that's pretty rad yeah yeah i guess i like I, from from a kind of connection perspective for you um and the the way that you've responded to this work and the effect it's had on you do you think that the the storytelling, the structure, the um, his writing style, those kinds of things have had a bigger impact on you or the the story itself or both? I think I've been affected by both. And it might also be the case that some of the themes and strategies that he, he uses, so the themes that he's attracted to as a person and as a writer, and then the technique that he employs as a craftsperson, it might be that I, I had some sort of pre-extant attraction to that stuff. But now I'd seen proof of concept in this really blazing, amazing way. Like, oh yeah, that can work. I want to try that. You know, so the idea of writing about really serious, the most serious things in a tone that isn't, you know, that, that avoids both sanctimony and undue solemnity was exciting to me. I love the idea of messing with form. And I'm sure that I was learning a lot. That was an instructional text, I'm sure. I love the idea of Weird shit, weird graphics, weird weird story structures that you can still follow. I remember reading in another one of his collections, there's an essay and it says something to the, the title is something to the effect of like everything we left unsaid. And then it's like seven blank pages. And and it's like, you know, you already got the heart of the joke. It doesn't give, it's not an essay you reread, obviously. But I remember just like, oh, this is interesting just to feel like what the edges of the room are. You know what I mean? What sort of weird shit could you do in a book? Right. And I know that in my, in my work, I've been really attracted to that, you know, even just from like album design, trying to create codes in text so that if I use a transparency that has some color blocks on it and lay it over my own artwork, a new text will be revealed or working, you know, with a text that maybe you read as you move through a space, like the weird and kind of more experimental parts of writing that are still accessible and sexy. Like those, those to me remain like, uh, you know, glasses all the way up on the nose, nerdy fascination. But I think talking about sad stuff and not asking everyone to be on church behavior mm -hmm. you know you can approach this with your full self and you don't have to to lower your voice and you don't have to yeah you don't have to you don't have to fold your hands like this is more like a an intramural you know volleyball game than it is like a, a sunday mass or something like it's rugged it's this this you know there's some inadvertent contact and i think that for me has been a lifelong fascination in writing too yeah yeah and that feeling again of like the worst moments in your life can still make you laugh. You still, there is joy there, there, you know, um, the emotional complexity of human beings, that spectrum of uh, emotion that's possible doesn't, you know, it doesn't exist in this narrow band at any given time. It's like there, there's light and dark um, and uh, everything in between in you know, a lot of moments and there are very, very sad moments. There are very, very happy moments, but it doesn't mean that the space around them is 
confined to just those feelings. I think also there was just some sort of like, gosh, I don't, I don't know if idiosyncratic is the word or not, but there was just, there were just some scenes that felt so lived that didn't fit into an extant trope with which I was familiar. Like, I think there was a scene where he's driving, uh, where our protagonist, Dave, is, is driving in the car with his little brother, Tove. And I think he was trying to get him to sing along with the radio, but he's like pointing to the radio and then pointing at his mouth, like, sing along with me, right? And it looks like he's trying to get him to eat the radio. And just like those minor moments that um, that I think a lot of other writers wouldn't consider worthy of the ink. Hmm. Like to me, that was like, yes, that is what it's like to be in a car with a bunch of weirdo friends. But it was just like, wasn't the sort of, exp- I would see, I would expect that more in cinema, right? Those weird, idiosyncratic, just sort of like vignettes of a vibe, as opposed to here I am forwarding a plot. Here I am making an allegorical connection. It was like, no, the vibe elevates this to inclusion worthy. You know what I mean? And I think he's really good at that. There's sort of like that indie film feel where if shit's cool, shit's cool. And it, and it can be included for no better reason than that. Yeah. But it, even in that moment, it's like the uh, amount of complexity that comes from that, where it's like just the idea that you know there's miscommunication between people, which happens all the time. But it also speaks to the fact that he's so much older than his brother, what their relationship has been and has evolved into. And when he's talked about his brother, he's like, we were already best friends. It wasn't a big deal. We were just kind of like roommates with one person having more responsibility than the other one. But again, just making that connection, driving around when they're driving, you know, up the highway in California, driving up the Pacific Coast Highway. And um, there's another thing where it's like almost an aerial shot over them where it's like, picture this, where we're in this car and we're driving and this is the, you know, have you ever been to California? It's amazing. And the... Yeah, just the the color and expressiveness and the amount of inf- information that's packed into these little moments um, is incredible. Quite a skilled writer. Yeah, no joke. It is interesting. I do wonder sometimes, like the way I use it too often, probably, but a word like cinematic, like even that aerial shot. If you, it's it's interesting to me the way that movies and particularly movie technology shapes the way that we can write a scene. Like you and I, if we were both writing or whatever, you know, two hundred years ago, we just wouldn't know what it looked like aerially, like the patchwork of farmland. You know, like I don't know, I don't know what that looks like from above. N- none of us would in a recognizable way uh, from a hilltop, maybe, but. But our brains are populated by images from drones. And that's the way that we write, too, you know, uh, which I find interesting. I think also, just on a personal tip, my little brother is like, you know, he was he was one of my, he, he remains one of my favorite people. But I was also very eager to, a, a semi-parental relationship. And so I'm sure that that made, like, my heart was particularly receptive and touched and moved by that story because I sibling stories still fuck me up. Do you have siblings? I do. Yeah, yeah. yeah. And my oldest sister is eight years older than me, so not too far off that um, that gap. So yeah, special for me. I think that's a special tenderness. You know, I'm easy. I'm e- I'm easier to tear or to lean in or to to feel that like surge in my heart on anything that that deals with sibling stuff. So yeah. Um, I should say, I meant the gap between Dave Eggers and his brother. Heard. Sometimes, yeah. The way that uh, the thoughts exist in my brain and the way that I convey that information to uh, other people it can be a little... Uh, a little bit of daylight, right, between all of us. A little a little tricky, yeah. Uh, anyway, I think that is a lovely note on which to finish. <laughs> so, uh, this has been really fantastic. Um, again, having a conversation about something that is super heavy but this has been very uh at least 
from from my end has felt very light and uh, and enjoyable. So yeah, thank you so much for the for the chance to talk and for the frank conversation. I really appreciate it. Yeah, yeah, great. Mm-hmm. Well, thanks again. All right, take All right. it easy. You too. Bye bye. Bye bye. Thanks again to Dessa for chatting with me. Check out her latest album, Bury the Lead, which is available right now. Okay, quick spark of the week from me. Uh, I started watching The Artful Dodger on Hulu, and, you know, I wasn't expecting much. The frankly ridiculous premise is that The Artful Dodger from Oliver Twist is a surgeon in 1850s Australia. That right there makes you roll your eyes, right? Um, But it's actually good. It's extremely light and breezy and zippy and the acting is good and like, you know, sometimes I just need something like that in my life. So if you want something that is highly entertaining and doesn't require too much brain power from you, check it out. And that's about it. Please follow me on social media at Spark Parade. Please follow me on Apple Podcasts and give the show a nice little review so you can have a chance at winning some exciting Consequence merch. Remember to take a screenshot of your review and upload it to the link in the show notes so you can actually enter that competition. And until next time, bye.